Hello, you have found the History of Southeast Asia podcast. I am your host, Charles Kimball. Episode 132, The Divided History of Timor, Part 1. Greetings, dear listeners, for the 132nd time, from the hills of bluegrass country in Kentucky. I don't know how life has treated you, but here in Kentucky, it has been bitterly cold for most of the time since the new year began. As I work on this episode, there is three to five inches of snow on the ground, and for the last two mornings, the temperature dipped down close to zero degrees Fahrenheit. Since both my wife and I come from warmer climates, the weather gives us special challenges, and it has us thinking of where we used to live. Last Thursday, a truck from Florida came to my city selling citrus fruits from Florida, and I bought a box of Honeybell Tangelos for us. Besides Florida, we also thought about Georgia, where our daughter lives. And of course, we thought about Southeast Asia, where it never gets cold. Anyway, if this is your first time with us, for the past few episodes, we have been touring the islands of eastern Indonesia. Most of those islands don't get too many visitors from the outside world. Last time, we arrived at Timor, a fairly large island on the side of Indonesia facing Australia. How large is it? Large enough to be divided between two countries. The western half of the island is part of Indonesia while the eastern half is an independent nation called East Timor or Timor-Leste, depending on whether you prefer to use the English or the Portuguese name. Previously, there was an episode all about East Timor, episode 117, where we looked at what has been happening there in the 21st century. Then with episode 131, we returned to Timor and looked at both sides of the island to learn what the island has to offer if you go there as a tourist. Well, we used up all our time seeing the sights in that episode, so now we're back for a more detailed history of the island than we had before. And as I do the research for these episodes, I don't want to leave out any of the delightful facts I have learned. So now it looks like I will need more than one episode just to properly cover Timor's history. Well, that's the same kind of mission creep I have heard from other history podcasts. So maybe I should call this series the Timor Trilogy. Of course, if you haven't listened to episode 131 yet, it will help a lot if you go listen to it first, and then come back to this episode. As for the material in episode 117, I probably won't repeat it again here. Maybe you can listen to that after you're done here. Okay, are you ready to go? Let's do it! 
nova mora Tanah air Ku yang tercinta Tempat bintang Dibesarkan Now, what can we say about the history of Timor, besides what was mentioned already? We can start with geography. From the start, I have defined Southeast Asia as the 11 countries between India, China, and Australia. Well, Timor is the nearest part of Southeast Asia to Australia. You could call it Southeast Southeast Asia, if you want to be redundant. The body of water separating the island from the continent is appropriately called the Timor Sea. Tropical cyclones, what we call hurricanes or typhoons in other parts of the world, can form in the warm waters of the Timor Sea. But because the sea is south of the equator, and these kind of storms usually do not cross that line, the storms are only a threat to Western Australia. Today, the Timor Sea is approximately 300 miles wide. However, in one of the earliest episodes of the podcast, I mentioned that during the Ice Age, world sea levels were lower, and that made the Timor Sea smaller. The part of the ocean between Timor and Australia may have been as narrow as 60 miles wide, or 100 kilometers. Therefore, we now believe the ancestors of the Aborigines came to Australia by crossing that waterway in simple watercraft, like dugout canoes. On the other side of Timor, it could have been joined to other Indonesian islands, by land bridges that no longer exist. So those first human inhabitants on Timor in prehistoric times would have arrived simply by walking there. Now who were those first humans on Timor? One thing we have figured out is that they came in more than one migration. Evidence for at least three of those migrations has been found. The first group to migrate, the ones I called the ancestors of the Aborigines, appear to be a Vedoid people, whose present-day descendants live in South India and Sri Lanka. My source on them said they could have arrived as long as 42,000 years ago, though it did not say where scientists got that early date. The dominant tribe on West Timor, the Atoin Meto, are probably directly descended from them, though they speak an Austronesian language, meaning the language is related to most other modern Indonesian languages. The Heilong tribe, which lives around Kupang, also comes from the first wave. More about them in a few minutes. Fish hooks from the first settlers have been found on Timor and it appears they made a living by catching tuna and other large fish in the open sea. So they must have been capable of building advanced seagoing vessels, a technology the Aborigines lost 
after they settled in Australia. The second group that migrated to Timor were Melanesians, and they arrived around 3000 BC. In earlier episodes, I told you how the Melanesians came from New Guinea, and today they mainly live on islands in the southwestern Pacific Ocean. But they also settled eastern Indonesia, going as far west as the island of Sumbawa. Today, the main evidence for Melanesians on Timor comes from the languages spoken there. Not all of them are related to other Indonesian languages. The best example of a Melanesian tribe on Timor is the Bunak people. They live in the central mountains and as a result are divided by the border between East and West Timor. However, the Melanesians' ability to expand westward was limited because they ran into another people, the ancestors of the Malays, coming into Indonesia from the opposite direction. The Proto-Malays, also called Austronesians or Malay Polynesians, got started on the Asian mainland, and they had an advantage over everyone they met because their outrigger canoes were more efficient ships, and they had a large population base behind them, because they grew rice on the large islands they had already settled, like Luzon in the Philippines. For the rest of the story on the Malay migration, go back, way back, to episode two of the podcast. Thus, the Proto-Malays were the third wave of migrating people that came to Timor, and they could have arrived as early as 2500 BC, around the same time that the ancient Egyptians were building their pyramids. For what it's worth, the people of Timor have myths which assert that their ancestors sailed around the eastern end of the island before making landfall on the south side. Other stories trace their ancestors back to the Malay Peninsula or the Minangkabau Highlands of Sumatra. Myself, I find those stories plausible, but unlikely. I think it is more likely that the Malay ancestors of the Timorese came from Borneo or Sulawesi, or they followed the lesser Sunda chain of islands eastward. Two examples of tribes with direct Malay ancestry are the Tatum, the largest ethnic group in East Timor, and the Kamak, who, like the Bunak, live along the border. That's all that we hear from Timor for more than 3,000 years, because we have no written records from the next stage. If you listen to the earliest episodes of the podcast, you will recall that Indian merchants and missionaries began visiting Southeast Asia around 250 BC. Visiting the coast of the mainland and western islands like Sumatra, Java, and Borneo, they introduced their culture and religions to the people they met. However, since their ultimate goal was to trade with China, they did not go to the eastern islands 
Those places were too far off the beaten path. That included Timor. After they arrived on Timor, the Proto-Malays did not go out to sea again, but concentrated their attention on the land. Still, they were willing to trade with the foreigners who came to them later, like the Chinese. These outsiders brought metal goods, rice, fine textiles, and their various coins, which they traded for the local spices, sandalwood, deer horn, honey, beeswax, and slaves. We now also believe that a second wave of migrating Malays arrived around 500 AD, and they introduced both advanced agricultural techniques, like wet rice cultivation and metallurgy. The first time Timor was mentioned in recorded history happened in the early 13th century. This comes from a Chinese book named the Fan Ji, or a description of barbarian nations, a guide to the lands beyond China, written by Zhao Ru Kuo. For those of you familiar with Chinese history, this would have been during the Southern Song Dynasty. The book refers to Timor as Ti Wu, and notes that the island has the world's best sandalwood. Because Chinese merchant ships had already been going to nearby islands for centuries, like the Philippines, we believe they also went to Timor for a long time, perhaps as early as the 7th century. For those of you not familiar with sandalwood, it grows in many places around the Indian and Pacific Oceans and is a valuable commodity, especially in India and China. This is a fragrant, fine-grained, evergreen shrub or tree that seldom exceeds 20 feet in height and a foot in diameter. Asians use sandalwood to make carved and inlaid boxes fans, combs, and walking sticks. Buddhists will use sandalwood powder to make incense, to burn at family shrines and temple altars. Hindus mix sandalwood paste with vermilion to make marks on their foreheads. In addition, the oil you can get from sandalwood is an ingredient of various perfumes, soap, cosmetics, and medicines. You can grow sandalwood commercially, and today there are sandalwood plantations in India and Australia, but the trees are slow growing. They have to be at least 15 years old before the wood and oil are any good. Consequently, most people with an interest in sandalwood have gone for the short-term profit, harvesting the wood from wild trees and decimating entire forests. In many of the places where sandalwood used to grow, like the Pacific Islands of Tonga and Fiji, you won't find it anymore for that reason. For example, Sumba, the island we visited in episode 129, used to have sandalwood forests, but they're gone now. On Timor, there is one forest left, 
and one of my sources calls it the last sandalwood forest in the world. Most of this deforestation was done by Europeans in the 19th century, before they had much concern for conservation and the environment. Nowadays, there is a small craft home industry on Timor, which uses sandalwood to produce items like Catholic rosaries, Muslim prayer beads, and intricately carved fans. Meanwhile on Java, the Majapahit Empire got started at the end of the 13th century, and during the 14th century, it expanded across all of present-day Indonesia. Timor appears to have been part of it, at least from 1359 to 1420. The epic poem written about Majapahit during that time, the Nagara Kirtagama, gives Timor the name Timur, meaning East, in modern Indonesian, and it states that Timor was divided into several mini-states, which paid tribute to Java. One result of the Majapahit period was that Timor would be firmly integrated into the trade networks of Indian and Chinese merchants, shortly before Europeans appeared on the scene. After Majapahit fell, Malacca, the state that rose on the Malay Peninsula around 1400, became a new trading partner of Timor. But the Malaccans thought Timor was one single, unitary realm. The first Europeans to reach Timor were the Portuguese, which shouldn't surprise any of you, since Portugal led the way when it came to exploring the world beyond Europe. However, my sources disagree on when the first Portuguese ship reached the island. To start with, a website called the Portuguese Historical Museum claims they arrived sometime between 1509 and 1511. However, I think that's unlikely. To start with, 1509 and 1511 are already important dates in Portuguese exploration. In episode 12, I said that 1509 was when the Portuguese discovered Malacca. In 1511 is when a follow-up expedition conquered it. Then in 1512, another expedition found the ultimate goal of all these voyages. The Spice Islands the source of the spices Portuguese ships traveled so far to get. Timor is near the Spice Islands, or as we call them today, the Moluccas, but not directly on the path to them. So it doesn't make sense that ships heading to the Spice Islands would discover Timor first. Meanwhile, Wikipedia asserts that the first Portuguese ship came to Timor in 1515. An Encyclopedia Britannica puts the first landfall in 1520. Personally, I prefer either one of those dates. They arrived not a day too soon, for the first Spanish ship made it there only two years after the last date, in 1522. 
This ship was the Victoria, the only ship from Magellan's expedition to complete the first voyage all the way around the world. And Timor was its last stop before it crossed the Indian Ocean. Antonio Pigafetta, the crewman who wrote the official story of the Magellan expedition, reported that one kingdom on Timor, called Weiwiku, or Weihali, was stronger than the rest. One century later, the ruler of Weihali was described as, quote, an emperor whom all the kings on the island adhere to with tribute as being their sovereign. Unquote. He got along with Makassar, a Muslim state we have already met on Sulawesi. And Weihali was one of the native states that opposed Portuguese efforts to hold and expand their outposts in Southeast Asia. The capital of Weihali, a village named Laran, acted as the religious center for the entire island. Pigafetta also tells us that Filipino merchants were already active on Timor before the Spaniards found the island. Soon the Portuguese would refer to the Filipinos as Lusoas. I hope I am saying that right. And Spain would call them Luzonis. Both names come from Luzon, the big northern island in the Philippines. Like the Chinese, the Filipinos came for Timor's sandalwood, and they valued it so much that they traded Philippine gold for it. The Spaniards did not stay on Timor because they had so many other prizes to exploit elsewhere. Portugal readily joined the trading network, harvesting sandalwood here and selling it in India and China. However, trading did not remain their only interest for long. They also wanted to make Christians of the natives they met. There were a few Dominican priests on the very first ship to arrive, and in 1556 a Dominican friar, Antonio Tavera, set up the first mission here. This was a village named Lifau, on the north coast of the island. Lifau would become the Portuguese base of operations on Timor for the next 200 years. Because the Portuguese empire was spread so thin around the world that Lisbon could only spare a few men for Timor, the missionaries ended up managing the sandalwood trade as well. The headquarters for the trade was not on Timor, but on Solor, a small island just east of Flores. The missions also grew slowly at this stage. By 1640, nearly a century after they started, there were 10 missions and 22 churches on the island. It was in Mena, a port on the north coast, that they converted their first ruler the queen of that town, in 1640. In response to this, the chief of Weihali would strengthen ties with Makassar by converting to Islam.
Native rulers quickly responded to the Portuguese expansion on Timor. 1640 also saw a raid from Tolo, a city-state near Makassar, which burned three coastal towns, including Mena, and carried off sandalwood and captives from those towns. Because of that, the next Portuguese force that came to Timor in May 1642 was stronger than usual. Instead of just the usual merchants and sailors, this time it was a military expedition. Ninety soldiers armed with muskets, led by one Captain Major Francisco Fernandez, and accompanied by three Dominicans. Because native warriors from some of the local states joined the Portuguese, the expedition was a complete success, sweeping across the island with only minimal resistance and breaking Wayhali's power over the other states. Afterwards, the Dominicans did their work by converting most of the minor rulers to Christianity. The rulers were willing to become Christians at this point. Not only would this gain better treatment from the Portuguese, it also helped ensure that the minor rulers would be independent of Wayhali in the future, since they no longer followed the religion that Wayhali used to promote. As for Wayhali, technically, it was now inside the Portuguese sphere of power, but European influence over it appears to have remained limited. Up until now, the Portuguese were the only Europeans active on Timor, but the situation was not going to stay this way. In 1613, the first Dutch ship arrived here. We saw in episode 17 that during the 17th century, the ultimate goal of Dutch activity was to replace the Spanish and Portuguese trading networks with one of their own. However, at first they saw the Chinese, rather than the Portuguese or the natives, as their greatest challenge. As one Dutch participant in the enterprise wrote in 1614, Quote, the greatest damage is to be feared from the Chinese, as they trade in articles which are unprocurable for us. Besides, they can afford to pay much more than we, as in China, manufactured goods are abundant and cheap. End quote. As it turned out, though, the Chinese were not a threat for long. Thanks to the rapid growth in the strength and wealth of the VOC, the Dutch East India Company, and because Chinese commerce on the seas suffered an interruption during the political transfer at home from the Ming to the Qing, or Manchu dynasty. In eastern Indonesia, the Dutch first took Solor. Then they landed on the southwest end of Timor. This was the site of Kupang. At this time, the port was ruled by a Raja from the Heilong tribe, who claimed descent from the island of Seram in the Moluccas. Kupang had the best harbor on Timor, 
so the Dutch decided to set up their headquarters here. They saw the Raja as an ally, because the Dutch East India Company did not have enough personnel to man a base on Timor. However, this turned out to be a mistake, for the Portuguese mestizo population from Flores, the Topasses, was now large enough to support Portuguese interests in the islands. To refresh your memory, the Portuguese flirted with Indonesian women after they arrived in Southeast Asia, and the Topasses were the children produced by these relationships. We first hear about the Topasses on Timor in 1618, and across the island they had a stronger influence than the Dutch even in Kupang. Contemporary records refer to the Topasses as Black Portuguese and assert that when given up-to-date weapons, they were just as good soldiers as the full-blooded Portuguese. At this stage, there were 450 Topasses on Timor, compared with 89 white Portuguese. The Topasses came to be dominated by two families. The de Hornet family, descendants of a Dutch deserter and native women, and the da Costa family, which was fully Portuguese on the father's side of the family. Another factor was the changing political situation back in Europe. For 60 years, the King of Spain had ruled over both Spain and Portugal. This arrangement, called the Iberian Union, came about because the Portuguese king was killed in a battle in Morocco, and he left no descendants. King Philip II of Spain took the empty throne, and the union lasted until 1640, when Portugal got another king of its own and regained independence. Since the Dutch had regarded the King of Spain as their real enemy, the Spanish-Portuguese split meant the Dutch were now less motivated to attack the Portuguese and their colonies. It also meant that the Portuguese recovered some of their strength, whereas they had been helpless against the first Dutch attacks on their empire, now they could fight back since the Spaniards were no longer restraining them. An agreement was quickly reached between the Dutch East India Company and the Raja of Kupang, but the Dutch soon realized they needed to have their own personnel on the spot. Therefore, in January 1653, they built a fort, Fort Concordia, on the bank of the river that supplied fresh water to Kupang. Kupang was a Dutch client state after that, though Portugal continued to dominate the rest of the island. However, when the Dutch attempted to recruit a native army, it proved less effective than the pro-Portuguese Topasses. There was a battle in 1655 where the Dutch commander, Major Jacob Verheyden was killed by a force led by a topaz, Antonio de Horne. The Dutch retaliated by sending a considerable force of their own, 
a squadron of ships with Arnold de Vlaming van Oudschorn, the military governor of Amboina, in command. The campaign van Oudschorn had participated in on Amboina to secure a monopoly over the spices from that island was one of the bloodiest in the Dutch East India Company's history, and it made van Oudschorn a notorious figure. Nevertheless, he did not fare as well on Timor. Details are not clear, except that in the Battle of 1657, the Dutch lost again. Estimates of the number of Dutch troops killed range from 34 to 170, so they must have been up against a sizable army. In the neighborhood of Kupang, pro-Portuguese forces managed to destroy a native village that was only three-quarters of a mile, or a little more than one kilometer, from the Dutch fort. All the Dutch could do was take in native refugees, especially from Wehali, that had been driven from their homes, and resettle them in and around Kupang. While the Raja remained the lord of the land, or Tuan Tana, he remained dependent on the Dutch, and the Portuguese continued to dominate most of Timor until 1749. On the Portuguese side, there was an anti-Portuguese rebellion in the town of Mena, where 27 people, both whites and mestizos, were massacred on the orders of the queen. The Portuguese governor at the time, Francisco Carneiro, had the king and queen of Mena executed, and this raised a big stink among the native population. Because none of them believed a private individual had the right to pass a death sentence on a king and queen. After that, there was a slump in the sandalwood trade, because many natives refused to do business with Europeans. Under these conditions, the Portuguese signed a treaty with the Dutch in 1661, in which both sides recognized the Dutch presence in Kupang and Portuguese rule over the rest of the island. Well, would you believe we have run out of time already? We managed to cover the first round in the conflict between the Dutch and the Portuguese over Timor. And since we're breaking off in the middle of the 17th century, you know there will be more to talk about next time. Join me again for the next episode as we continue the historical narrative. And while I am doing the research each episode requires, if you live north of the tropics, may the rest of winter be mild for you. 
When I got started on this podcast, there were less than one million podcasts in the world. Recently, I heard that there are now three million podcasts. So I am grateful that you have chosen to listen to this one. Sometimes when I tell others about this podcast, I have to start by explaining to them what a podcast is. Maybe the time is coming up when I will no longer have to do that. Usually I tell them it's like a radio program, but it's on the internet, so you can listen to it whenever you like. Anyway, your financial support helps keep this podcast running. Since I still don't run any ads on it, there haven't been any one-time donations lately. So if you have a PayPal account, consider making a donation. Like I have said before, this podcast is free for you, the listeners, but not for me, the podcaster. It costs me some money and more than a little time to produce each episode. To make a one-time donation, follow the PayPal links I posted on the Blueberry.com page where this episode is hosted or on the podcast's Facebook page. After you click on the link, follow the instructions. You can also support the podcast by becoming a patron, where you pledge to give a small amount at the beginning of each month, one dollar or more. If you want to do that, there is also a Patreon link on the previously mentioned Blueberry page. I don't mention enough how much I appreciate the patrons. Those of you who make a one-time donation will get their first names added to the Podcast Hall of Fame page. If you haven't seen that page, there are also links to it from Blueberry.com and the Facebook page. And if you donate in more than one year, there's more. Those who donate in two different years will get the coveted water buffalo icon added next to their names. Those who donate in three different years will get the ever-popular Shui Dagon Pagoda icon added next to their name as well. Those who donate for four years will get the outrageous Merlion icon. And those who donate for five years will get the awesome Volcano Icon. Two of you have gotten the awesome Volcano Icon, but now we are into a new year, so I should add a new icon for those who have donated in six years. Will one of you make me do it? Put me to the test. Okay, I've said enough for now, so thank you for listening. And come back when the monsoon winds are blowing right.